0: John 1, 14 through 18, and to be brutally honest, you could probably preach from this passage for a long time. Therefore, I know this sermon will not touch on the vast majority of it, and you will probably be able to go other places and most likely find sermons that are far, far, far better or more informative in certain ways, but we're going to look at one kind of specific aspect of what's going on in the passage. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let us pray. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to understand. We need to know you. You are worthy of being known. We are desperately made to know you. Give us help, we pray. Work your spirit in us now, we ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think back. All the way back, some of you to chemistry class, and I just lost some of you for the rest of the sermon. Right, you're done. That was it. It's finished. Right, it's over. You're gone. You remember chemistry class? So if you think back to those years, whenever that was, maybe uh, recently, maybe not quite so recently, and you remember there were kind of two aspects to your chemistry class. You would sit there, and the teacher would teach you about kind of chemical reactions or whatever. You would learn how if you mix these two chemicals together, it's going to produce this third chemical, and it's going to produce some heat, and it may produce a lot of it, and that's neat. And you learn to balance your equations, and you learn how all of that stuff would work, and most of us at that part of the class sat there like this, Yes, <laughs> and it didn't make any sense at all. We could understand that when you add this together and this together, it produces this thing and extra heat, but we just kind of went, and then the teacher would take us over to the other half of the classroom where the lab was, and we would mix this together and this together, and it would blow up, and we understood, oh, I get it, it makes the third thing, and it makes heat, and the result is it explodes, or whatever, You know, we did the things where you you mixed them together and it makes the foam that shoots up to the ceiling and it's all, you know, oh, it's amazing. It's actually learning the kind of same process, but it's learning it in two different ways. One, you're learning it through your ears, and the other, you're learning it through your eyes. It's very good teaching methodology, pedagogy. Very common in almost every chemistry class in America works this way. You have class and you have lab. You have theory and you have practice. You have the abstract and the concrete. You have that thing that kind of works out in nebulous la-la land and then the meat and potatoes. This is what it actually looks like. I still remember when we made silver nitrate in our chemistry class in 1995. And I didn't really pay attention to chemistry, truthfully. In John... In this section of chapter 1, he's intending to take the reader from the theory section to the reality section. Not to say the other's not reality, but to take us from the desk where we're listening to the lab table where we're exploding. He's taking us from where we're processing with our ears to processing with our eyes. He's taking it from abstract truth to concrete reality. We're going to see how he does this as we go. But you have to kind of get a little bit of a framework to be reminded for those that were in nursery or haven't been here. He has been waxing eloquently, truthfully, righteously on this person, the Word. And he has been going overboard to help us understand that the Word is. Is God. There's no quibbling. There's no softening. There's no kind of mushiness. Right? These aren't the vanilla wafers that have sat in the banana pudding for a wee bit too long. So you can't distinguish them from the bananas anymore. He's not. He, he's, there's no kind of fuzziness at all. There is a word. And he is God. And he is God in every aspect of that, and we see Him functioning as God. He's the agent of creation, so that when God spoke, He's the the voice. He's the word that acted in creation. That's pretty powerful. He is life. I don't really know what that even looks like. In some ways, I have life. It doesn't take that much to actually take it away from me, right? You can take temperature down really low or the temperature up really high or any other you know little microscopic bugs and my life ceases he is life he is light he he is God and John has been building this strong case this overwhelming case for the divinity of the word and you must get that in your mind for the next paragraph to make sense He has been painting a painting thus far with all one color. Divinity of the Word, divinity of the Word, divinity of the Word, divinity of the Word. And he's about to come in with a gross contrast. I mean, completely different. Shockingly different to the point where if you didn't know anything about Christianity and you were reading this in the original time, you would be just dumbstruck at where this is going. This word that is the wisdom of God, it is the truth of God, it is the power of God here in verse 14, and the word became flesh. And that would have resonated like an atomic bomb in the minds of original readers. They were in still so many ways trapped in this idea of Greek thought that the spirit was good and the body was bad and all things related to matter and body and stuff and physicality were all bad. And they were trapped in that way of thinking. The Greeks thought that way. Um, It infiltrates the church later and we still have some of that around today. Uh, But the idea that spiritual things are good, unseen things are good, and and seen things, physical things are bad. It's wrong, but they had that idea. And here you have this divine word, this one that John has been framing so passionately and powerfully and unequivocally as God becoming flesh. Now we do have to do a little bit of unpacking there because the the word become, became, in English can mean a lot of different things. Right? The apple became a banana. Well, that doesn't make any sense, but if it did, it would have to stop being an apple. Uh, we run into kind of translation differences that we could kind of, I guess, get ourselves into trouble. The best way to think of this is when a woman becomes a mother. Does she stop being a wife? No. Does she stop being a woman? No, she, she takes on a new identity, a new aspect to her character. Christ does the same thing here as the Word becomes flesh. He, he takes on a new aspect to who He is, only for us it's not just uh, when we take on new things, it's like you know, something temporal and small and simple. He takes on a new nature so that the one who is God and is with God Becomes, he takes on. He puts on. He becomes flesh. And that becoming flesh is something that is so uh, profound and transforming. Again, we kind of forget the significance of all that means. The second person of the Trinity stepped inside matter. That's how all of your catechism questions basically begin in dealing with God. God is a spirit. He's outside of matter. He, he is not constrained by laws that deal with energy or physics or you know, anything that kind of binds us. Or not, He's not trapped by gravity, doesn't have to worry about any of those. He's, he's not a material being. Many physicists today think that the universe, it's probably all kinds of funny shapes, but it has edges, it has ends. There are places that are universe and then there's something where it stops, where it's no longer the universe, it's it's something else. Basically think of it as kind of like a gigantic ball or a box. There are things inside of the universe, but it stops at places. And prior to this point, God was outside of that box. He wasn't inside matter. He wasn't inside energy. He wasn't inside time. He wasn't inside space because, you know, all those things are interrelated. So that when he looked at creation, he saw all of time all at once, constantly and always. He was never pinned down to the timeline. It's fun to think about that when you pray to the Lord, that your prayers are going to one who doesn't have the same cause and effect timeline that I do because he sees it all He's not trapped. He's not confined. And this means serious things for us, right? For me, uh, I'm on that timeline. It means I can only be in one place at one time. I can't be simultaneously here and at home in the bed. If I could figure out a way to do that, I would probably spend more time at home in the bed. (laughs) I'm confined by the laws of the universe, so to speak. I have this moment, which becomes the next moment, which becomes the next moment. I I am on a timeline. And God steps inside flesh and steps inside creation and doesn't just step inside creation into something that He has particularly and specially created for Himself. He did not make for himself like the grand, divine, glorious, amazing body that when he steps inside all people around the world can see it because he's so gigantic and powerful and terrible and all striking and glorious all in one go. He doesn't do that. He steps inside flesh the normal way. In a womb, in a young, poor Arab girl. And becomes human in every sense of the word save one. He does not pick up the sin nature that everyone else has, but he picks up everything else. When you get sick physically, Christ got sick physically. When you went through puberty, Christ went through puberty. When you had to learn to shave, fellas. When you stubbed your toe, he was a carpenter. When you got those nasty splinters, the calluses that split open, he is human. In every sense of the word, he had to have diapers changed. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn and grow. He is human. On a side note here, just as a word of application, still getting into it, but I would contend that most of us, as kind of Reformed folks, we do such a brilliant job of understanding the divinity of the Lord Jesus, we forget his humanity. We actually forget that he had to learn the Bible. He had to learn the promises of God. He had to learn and develop intellectually. He did not come out of the womb having, you know, all of it understood and memorized and able to apply it. And he had to work hard at it the same way we do. He had the confines of human memory the same way I do and the same way you do. It wasn't like he just read it once and had it all in his mind forever and ever. He's human, non-corrupted, but human. He becomes everything that we are. His emotions. All of the emotions of a teenager. All of the emotions of one who should have eaten a little bit more but his blood sugar is a little out of whack. All of what it means to be human. And not just becomes human but dwells among us. Dwells among humans. And the, the word here is, uh, it's funny. John takes a noun and turns it into a verb. And we do this all the time in, in words where we want to get a concept, but we make it into a verb. Belief, believing. Uh, he takes one here. Uh, the Brits actually do this when they refer. We, you know, we say camp and camping. I'm going camping. They say tenting. That's what the Brits say. It's always fun. You know, we're going tenting. We're going to go stay in a tent. Great idea. That's actually what it is here. It's tabernacling. He he tabernacled. He came and tented among his people. He came and lived here among us. He tabernacled among the people of creation. And John is here doing two things. One of getting the idea that Jesus resides with people. It's not fake It's not pretend. It's not an illusion. It's not some sort of grand divine play. It's not melodrama. He's not scheming. He actually lives with people. When his father passed away, he's probably comforting his mother. Boy, you want to talk about an interesting conversation. I would love to have seen that. The Lord Jesus, however old he was, Comforting his mother with the words of the scriptures the loss of his earthly father. Every bit of human experience. But not just is he picking up this idea that he lives with people and in relationship, but also he's he's kind of drawing out this idea of the tabernacle, the Old Testament idea of the tabernacle was the place where God lived among the people. In fact, actually, the tabernacle is very significant for ancient Israel. It did a number of things, just briefly listing off some of them. The tabernacle was the place where the law was preserved. Ten Commandments kept in the ark, ark kept in the tabernacle. It's the place where the law of God was kept, it was preserved. It was the dwelling place of the Lord of hosts. It's where God lived among the people. It was at the center of camp. So that when Israel stopped their journeys and set up camp, the tabernacle went there and everything went out from the tabernacle. It was the center of life. It was the place of revelation. It was the place where sacrifices were made. It was the place where worship took place. It was the center of relationship between God and man. And it's interesting that John is calling forth to the reader to say, oh, by the way, this Jesus, this word becomes the center of God's relationship with man. Christ becomes the place where the law is preserved. Christ becomes the dwelling place of God. Christ becomes the center of the church. Christ becomes the place of revelation. Christ becomes the sacrifice. Christ becomes the center of worship. He tabernacles. He he is with his people. Well, okay, that's neat and all. And it is neat. I think it's neat. But so what? What's the significance of Christ taking on flesh, becoming human, and living amongst his people? What is the significance of that? Well, that's the theme we're going to kind of pull from the text here as we look. The thread that we trace through these few verses, what does it matter And that Christ has become flesh and dwelt among us. First, and we're going to look at these from the concept of uh, Revelation primarily. First, Christ revealed the glory of God. Christ revealed the glory of God. And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and oh, look, lo and behold, what's that first theme introduced there? We have seen His glory... Glory is of the only Son of the Father full of grace and truth. It's actually where they end it as well. No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. His job is to reveal the glory of God. And I I find this to be an just mind-boggling, interesting concept. To think that so much of what Christ's task is on earth is to showcase the glory of the triune God to created men and women, boys and girls. And so the way that he does that is to become a poor carpenter. In the middle of nowhere, in a country that's not really significant in any sort of way aside from the fact that God chose it, that didn't exist for a large portion of human history. He steps into complete and total anonymity. He steps into insignificance to showcase the glory of God. And does this in, in a number of ways. You remember one... All of us are designed, all people are designed in God's image. And so there's an aspect in which all people show the glory of God. I've said this before in sermons, but if you want to see what God looks like, just look at your neighbor. Because it's the closest thing you have to seeing Him. It's his image. It's a, a stamp that looks somewhat like Him in a way that I don't understand. My body resembles the image of God. My internal composition resembles the image of God. What does God look like? Well, I'm I'm looking at a, a very poor copy of Him all over right now. So Christ comes in as the perfect man, as that perfect copy. And what he does is he showcases so much of what we don't understand about God's glory is that we so often associate glory with visible things. With things that we can touch and taste and smell and see and just perceive right away. It's college football season. It's perfect for watching manufactured human glory. Things that we think will define our lives forever. So much glory. The catch that the Ohio State, I hate using Ohio State as a positive illustration, but the catch that their wide receiver made yesterday, one of the most astounding catches I've ever seen in my entire life. Diving out the back of the end zone, caught it one-handed against the back of the defender because he was getting mauled as he fell out of bounds. Unbelievable catch all over the media, all over the news. That'll be like the defining moment of this guy's life. What glory and what Christ is coming to say is, you've really missed it as to what glory looks like. Glory looks like righteousness and obedience. It looks like holiness and love. It looks like self-sacrifice and self-control and self-discipline. It looks like obedience to the law of God. It looks like all those things that we don't really like to talk about sometimes. It looks like kindness. It looks like gentleness. It looks like hope. It looks like God. He showcases God's glory as the perfect man. And you think about it, it makes sense. We have phrases that kind of capture this idea. A picture is worth a thousand words. It's not really a true statement, but the idea is it helps us to understand those words. And Christ has come in and is demonstrating what glory looks like as he lives perfection before his people. I love that tender moment between the disciples and Jesus. He's just finished praying, and you can kind of see the gears in their mind working. If that's what prayer looks like, I've probably never prayed. And so they ask him, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Our prayers are rotten. We don't do this well. We don't have that glory in them. He teaches how to pray, and so he does. He gives them a prayer to use and a prayer to build off of. He teaches them prayer. He's the perfect man. The perfect encapsulation of the glory of God. Showcasing God's perfect glory. Now, interestingly, though, It's not just as an example of glory. It is His glory. He has kind of an already not yet aspect to it. He's already demonstrating part of that glory, the spiritual, the righteousness, the obedience, the holiness, but He's not yet demonstrating all of the second coming glory. The riding on the clouds, the chariot of God, the judging his enemies, the destroying those that stand against him. He reveals the glory of God. Not just his glory, though. I mean, that would be that'd be a fantastic play. I mean, even if that's all Jesus did, that would be fantastic. I mean, that would be a win just with that right there. I mean, you think about it. Throughout church history, the more they have want to know the Lord, every time he reveals himself, he in essence reveals himself in his law. It's the best way to know who God is, is his law. And now they have a living, breathing, walking, talking law in front of them. The one who will keep it perfectly. What a better way to see who God is. But not just his glory, his character, his nature, but also his truth. Glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bears witness, 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 17, law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. As he is the very word of God, he is the truth of God, King Jesus, Jesus Christ, is truth incarnate. He is truth in flesh and blood. And that is just, again, worth pondering forever. And I'm thankful we have heaven looking. We can look forward to heaven because we get time to do that. And so much of our lives now we have occupied with different things. We have to do jobs. We have to eat. We have to sleep. Inconvenient as it is. We have to. In glory, we have no time constraints on pondering the glory of Jesus. But to think about how He is walking and talking and living and breathing truth, He is truth incarnate. And as I was kind of pondering different illustrations of how to get us to understand that, I kind of struck out, because you can't really give good illustrations of this, because there's no other case where this has ever happened, ever, anywhere. But the best thing I could possibly think of is with children and their relationship to God. And they're not intellectually sophisticated enough to give this answer. But if you take a small child and you ask them, what does God look like? Parents, you may never have thought about this. Their answer will almost always, in essence, be a description of mom and dad. Because that's how God has designed us. We learn about authority from those in authority over us. And so their description, in some way, is going to be a description of mom and dad or grandma and granddad, whatever, but those in authority over them. Because for a small child in their little intellectual stunted early stages, whatever, they don't have the horsepower yet to understand what holiness is and what righteousness is and what obedience is. They they don't understand that. But they totally understand when dad says one thing and does another. And they totally understand when dad loses his temper and when he's gentle. And they totally understand when mom is kind And kisses boo-boos and makes them go away and provides comfort. They understand so much about that idea from their parents. It's almost like there's some aspect in which mom and dad are that walking, talking kind of idea, that image of God, that truth for them. It's also why, for those that have been blessed with very good and righteous and godly parents, there is that really emotionally traumatic point in a child's life where they realize that mom and dad are sinners and don't have all the answers. Now, if you, you didn't have great parents or were blessed with a, a happy relationship with them, that moment may have happened very early and may not have been quite so uh, shocking or disturbing. But if you had a great relationship with your parents, that's a really hard moment, like an emotional crisis for a child. To realize, oh no, mom's not perfect and she can't fix everything. She can't kiss all boo-boos away. I need someone who can. You know, sometimes parents do lie and that's not okay, it's wrong. I need someone who doesn't lie. I need someone bigger and better. Christ Jesus is walking, talking, living, breathing, truth incarnate. Every word that came out of his mouth was perfectly true, in proper balance. And that second part is just as astounding as the first. That he said the right thing, but always in the right way. Which is really, I mean, again, just mind-blowing. He's having conversations with his enemies, and he calls them whitewashed tombs and insults them to their face. And he's righteous in doing it. He's talking to one of his disciples. He says, calls him Satan, tells him to go away. <laughs> and he's righteous for doing it. Spectacular. Ooh, I must go quicker. He reveals the glory of God. He reveals the truth of God. He also reveals the grace of God. He reveals the grace of God. And this is a beautiful thing to think about. Remember, God does not change. He's outside of time and space. In order for you to have to have change, you have to be kind of on the timeline. Because you have to be one way before and then another way after. God is outside time and space. He never changes. He's always the same, and He's always that all the time. So God is just, always. He's merciful, always. He's righteous, always. He's holy, always. He's always those things. He's angry always. He's jealous always. Patient always, kind always. He is always those things. It's interesting in the Old Testament, you see God's grace and mercy, but it is held so tightly with his wrath and judgment that it's emotionally demanding and difficult. As you see the law and saying the law is life and God's people cannot keep the law and they fall short of the law and it says be perfect and it says be holy as I am holy and I've never been able to keep it perfectly for an hour, much less my entire life and it damns me and it condemns me and it judges me constantly and I need grace and here is Christ, grace incarnate. He shows up on the scene to show, to demonstrate, to reveal what has always been there in the mind of God that God is gracious to his people and to those that aren't his people. Again, think about, pray it in the prayer, immune systems. That God would make our bodies to heal in a time when, when he first made us, we would never need to heal there's no death why would we need that what mercy what grace what kindness but here christ comes in and i love how in verse 16 or 17 he's held in contrast to moses remember again that old testament law it's painting that backdrop of darkness, it's painting that backdrop of this is God's law, you cannot keep it. You never have kept it, and under the law you stand condemned and judged only. It's that painting. We watched a lot of Bob Ross on the house. That painting where you start with all of the dark color in the background so you can put the white mountains on front. In the midst of that judgment, of that condemnation, of that damnation of the law, of that you can be perfect to save yourself, but you got no chance. Then King Jesus comes in and reveals grace upon grace upon grace. Showcasing what has always been in the character and the heart of God that out of God's fullness He would step into time and space and would extend the mercy of the Lord. That He would provide a way of salvation that for the first time ever doesn't depend on me. Again, can ponder that, that God would provide salvation that doesn't rest on you. It doesn't depend on you. Finally, Because honestly, if we're going to be brutally honest, how many of us have grown weary in doing good? We're exhausted in our Christianity. We're tired. Or maybe we're not tired, maybe we've just grown cold, a bit reserved, maybe even presumptive. It's just an assumed thing. And we forget that it's not deserved. He steps inside time and space. He lives as a human for he is a human. He lives it perfectly as our representative and he pays judgment on our behalf. So that in a handful of chapters, a few pages in about a year and a half, when we get to the end of this book, we're going to find out when he dies and he pays for sin, it accomplishes something. It accomplishes mercy for me. And this is so unbelievably human, these verses. The word becomes flesh, and this flesh interacts with all of humanity and transforms humanity, and it is a part of humanity. And the natural temptation would be to say that this word has become only human. And John wisely, Holy Spirit working... Knowing the frailty of the human mind, the human heart, our ability to misconstrue, distort, and (laughs) break everything. In verse 15, in the middle of this, provides a solid anchor. Oh, be reminded. Oh, don't forget. That just because he has stepped inside of humanity, just because he's revealing God's glory in humanity, just because he's revealing God's truth in humanity, just because he's revealing God's grace in humanity, does not mean he has put away his divinity. He is still the uncreated God. And you have that tension fully at work. God of God, light of light, but also man. One person, two distinct natures. And saw, I it's right in the text. Here's ground is rooted right here. John bore witness about him and said, hey, look, by the way, this is the one who I was talking to you about that's greater than me because he was before me. Now, that's kind of an odd thing because John's the older one biologically. I remember John was born first. But he said, this guy, he, he was before me because he made me. He's before time itself. He is the uncreated God. This Christ becoming flesh is the transformative event in human history because we get to see who God is and watch him accomplish our salvation. Okay, well, what do I do with that? A couple of points of application. Jeremiah put me on the hook to do this and Sunday school. I'm just kidding. It was already in my notes. I'm just kidding. Again, you'd be reminded that John has been building to call us to ch- challenge us to faith. That is why this book is written. It's written to force you into some sort of decision. It's not left to be neutral. Right? He... he is setting us up kind of much like the idea of you kind of take a Sunday afternoon nap today and if you woke up and had a gigantic rattlesnake in your lap there is no way you can not decide to do something you have a couple of different options of what you will decide to do but you must do something you can't just sit here and go oh well it's no big deal I'll go back and take my nap now round two of nap here we go No, something must change. And that's what John is forcing us to think about. How will I respond to the Lord Jesus? Now, for many of us, we know the answer to that. We say, well, oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian, obviously. I've already responded. I know how uh, my standing is with Christ. I I know who he is. I've yielded my life to him, and that's great. Praise the Lord. That's good. I would maybe challenge you to consider again that that obedience to him, that response to him, that belief in him is one that is um, an all-consuming sense of wonder again. There's a sense of marvel attached to him. And I would put it this way. The challenge with Reformed folk, and I would say believers as a whole, but Reformed folk particularly, is that we get so much packed up in here that we lose that just mind blowing wonder at what God is doing. Going back to chemistry class, that we get so preoccupied with the equations that we lose the sense of just shock and awe when the you know, teacher pours this into that and it blows up in class. And I remember being a middle school boy and watching the first day my teacher made a stink bomb. And my eyes got so big and I remember thinking, how is this possible in school? <laughs> Whoa! Right? How often do we do, find ourselves in that same kind of moment as we contemplate the glory of God? How is this possible in creation? Whoa! If you find yourself this week in a, a, maybe a spot of dryness in your faith, I might encourage you, as your pastor, kind of lovingly poke at you, Take a little bit of a spiritual inventory. See if you've lost that just sense of worship, that sense of wonder. Maybe your faith has become simply routine, a routine obedience. And now, don't get me wrong. Routine obedience is good. You should have that. It's much better than routine disobedience. But routine obedience coupled with worship is the key. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Great Savior shepherd of the sheep forgive us for our small mindedness give us a sense of marveling at Christ in Jesus name Amen Amen.